0: To stuff mom never told you from houseofworks.com Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about women mechanics and to kick things off, we want to talk about a woman named Nancy Boyce who is a total badass.
1: Yeah, we read this article about a Clark College diesel technician program graduate. And reading the article, you're like, oh, this is just going to be one of those like softball, like, oh, rah, rah women articles. But no, this, this woman, there's nothing softball about her. Uh, she was Caterpillar's, or is Caterpillar's first female field mechanic in Alaska. And this article touches on all of these, Incredibly difficult
0: circumstances that Boyce has to deal with being a mechanic in rural Alaska. Yeah. And the reason why she picked Juno was because after she graduated with like a three nine nine from diesel tech school, she wanted to know what the most. Lucrative, uh, caterpillar dealership was, and it just happened to be in Alaska, probably because of how, you know, the, how difficult it is to service all of the equipment in the surrounding remote areas. So she was like, okay, I'm going to Alaska. She gets the job. And I wish we could just read the article aloud (laughs) so that we can, you know, fully communicate all of the lengths that she would have to go to to fix generators and tugboats and all of these crucial pieces of machinery that keep these small communities running. Yeah,
1: and of course she does touch on the fact that she'll show up to do a job and some guy will say, oh great, I'm losing thousands of dollars a day and they send me a girl. And of course they have to apologize and eat their words after she does an incredible job and a professional job at fixing whatever the broken machinery is. And of course she also talks too about how you aren't always working for money when you go to these smaller towns that sometimes you work for food um or even blankets in some cases with people leaving handwritten thank you notes saying you you don't even realize that you just saved my family by
0: fixing this generator. Yeah, I think one of her uh, most prized gifts that she received in exchange was uh, seal butter which is a delicacy. Yeah. All right. I'd work for butter. Well, Caroline, if uh, you find a stick of butter on your desk in the next few weeks, just don't be surprised. Is that my bonus? It's a little thank you gift for me <laughs> to you. What would you do if I left margarine on your desk, though? I'd probably like that better considering I am
1: super sensitive to lactose. Okay. Noted. <laughs> there we go. So if you're going to
0: leave a, a fat product oh. on my desk. Oh, man. What if listeners start sending you margarine? I would think that was hysterical. <laughs> but back to boys. <laughs> so uh because of though the continual harassment that she would face on the job, even though she would, you know, do her job very well, she got kind of down and out and ended up leaving Caterpillar and she'd saved up a bunch of money because she was making so much money and she just traveled around Alaska as you do. Like you do. And um Ended up, after she kind of recharged from it, ended up starting her own business, Power Tech Generation, and is now doing gangbusters and has three employees and can barely keep up with all the requests. And I feel like she's such a good person to kick off this episode about women mechanics with because her experience touches on so many of the issues we're going to talk about in terms of how... It's, the story came out in 2015 mm-hmm. and she was a first. So that goes to show how few women are in this industry. She deals with harassment, which is common, or at least, you know, the, the, the quips about, Oh, you're a woman. I don't know if you can fix things. And in the, the article noted how, you know, she, she's, she's stereotypically pretty, which comes up a lot in these, these articles too of like, don't worry. She's still a woman. Yeah. She still has that blonde hair.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. And her nose is pierced. <laughs> like she is nuts. Holy crap. And Boyce was smart to enter this field because diesel service techs and mechanics make, can make a lot of money. It's a field with a super positive job outlook. It's growing. Even faster than the regular economy. You can buy
0: a lot of butter you if can. you're a diesel mechanic. So much butter replacement product. <laughs> and we should quickly note the various types of mechanics. There's the diesel mechanic, obviously, like Boyce. There's also aircraft mechanics, small engine mechanics, heavy vehicle mechanics, which fix, uh, who fix like farm equipment and things like that. And then auto mechanics, which we're going to focus on. A today,
1: that's right. In 2014, there were about 740,000 automotive service techs and mechanics in the country, in the United States of America, who maintain, inspect and repair cars and
0: sometimes frustrate uh, female customers because they talk down to them.
1: Well, this actually, no, seriously, like reading for this episode got me real stressed out because it's time to take my car in for an inspection and I, it's not that I expect anything massively wrong to be a problem. However, I just, uh, I just like cringe when it's time to go to either the dealership or a mechanic because I don't like to be talked to like I'm a 10 year old girl.
0: I feel your pain. I feel your pain indeed. Um, but these mechanics do <laughs> for their, obviously, hashtag not all mechanics. <laughs> But, sure of course <laughs> but while condescension is uh sometimes part of the job it seems like uh, they are well compensated the median salary is a little over thirty seven thousand dollars but they can earn up to sixty two thousand dollars but then if you're really specialized you can earn a lot more than that I knew um uh, or a friend of mine's brother I want to say he is a Porsche mm-hmm. specialist mechanic and that fellow is making. In the six figs.
1: He's he's earning figs. Figs. Oh, my God. You earn butter. He earns figs. All the Fig Newtons. I love this economy. I know. Everyone's so full and (laughs) greasy. People are talking about how we still haven't totally snapped away from the recession. But I believe it's true. Um, So as for training, if you want to be an auto mechanic, uh, you basically have to have the equivalent of a high school diploma and go on to enroll in training programs at like a vocational school or college. And of course, you get on the job training and about two to five years of hands on experience before you become a full fledged technician. But I'm sure you get to wear the awesome coveralls the whole time. I know that seems like the biggest perk of the job. (laughs) Not the money, not the self-respect, not the knowledge that you know how to fix something that other people don't. It's the clothes.
0: Caroline, you you know firsthand that I can have a difficulty, shall we say, putting an outfit together. Oh, you love a jumpsuit. And coveralls <laughs> combined. Yes, my love of jumpsuits. And the simplicity just, of just one and done. Yeah. That's it. Like a ghostbuster. <laughs> yes. Um, But one aspect of this job that I, I really just hadn't thought about before was that it's not just working on traditional mechanical systems like engines and transmissions and drive belts and such, but you also have to learn how to work with all of these electronic systems because the newer cars that are coming out are essentially just like Computers on wheels. Computers
1: on wheels. I know. That's exactly what I was going to say. A car today, I feel like that I sound so like a car today Um, might have more than 20 microprocessors running everything from braking and transmission to steering and accident avoidance systems. Like, I know my mother has a super fancy car and it's got all these bells and whistles and like 50,000 computers and she doesn't understand a single part of it. She barely even like... She'll get lost. And I'm like, you literally have like a cockpit map in your car that you could use. And it's just it blows
0: her mind. She can't do it. And comparatively, I feel like my car is just full of old typewriters (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) But the computerization of cars is one kind of selling point that the industry has been using to woo women saying, listen, it's not all of this heavy, greasy work a lot of uh, computer programming as well and of course other important skills that tend to be characterized as more uh, female friendly traits such as customer service being detail oriented organized and troubleshooting yeah
1: and a lot of when you when you read articles about women mechanics There is always that quote about, oh, we love hiring women because they are so detail oriented and they take their time and make fewer mistakes. And I just wonder if that doesn't come out of I'm sure it's true. I'm sure people aren't making that up. But um, I wonder if that comes out of women who become mechanics in this male dominated field feeling like they have to work. Twice as hard. We we tend to encounter that, whether it's in academic studies or just anecdotal reports from women of when you're in one of these male dominated industries, you do tend
0: to have to bust your butt to prove yourself. Yeah. And on the part of the boss, I would bet that there is a little bit of an element of surprise Mm -hmm. embedded in that quote, too, of like, I mean, she did it. And so well, (laughs) look at her
1: didn't even mess up. And these are also reasons that are cited when you read about mechanic shortages. There was this USA Today article from a couple years ago, but this is definitely not something that's gone away, that was about auto dealers and auto tech educators who are really worried about a shortfall of mechanics saying that it's really hard to attract and retain younger folks because I just heard a, a thing on NPR the other day talking about how, maybe it was this morning. It was this morning. I know the story you're talking about. Okay, yeah, it feels like it was already three years ago um, from when I just rolled out of bed. But they were talking about how not only younger people, but now it's a trend among older folks as well to let their driver's licenses lap, especially with so many people moving back to to urban city centers. People are like, well, I don't want the expense of a car. And so if you have this generation that's giving up driver's licenses, they're not as pumped about getting the license and driving and learning how to take care of the car. They haven't taken auto repair or shop classes in high school, if their schools even offer it. Right. And maybe they haven't taken taken the higher level math and science that's required for jobs like this. So you can imagine that it's hard to sort of woo, as you said, anyone, let alone women to this
0: job. But as Nancy Boyce wisely assumed, I mean, there's there's great job security. If you study to become an auto tech, chances are you will definitely get a job and you'll be able to keep that job.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, your local mechanic is not going to be outsourced. That job is not going to go away. And a lot of people that were quoted in articles that we read talk about the joy of getting to solve challenges and problems that not everybody can. Um and there's also a really large need for master technicians and these people are being asked to do jobs that a couple of years ago would have required an engineering degree. So there's a lot of responsibility. Of course the flip side of that is like maybe you should be raising pay
0: if you want to attract more people to this job. Well, let's talk then about women because you know the the industry is slowly courting more women because I mean, there are not many of us in that labor force. I mean, overall, if we look at all of the workers in the U.S., we make up about 47% of those. But if you look just at the automotive workforce, we make up 24%. But then, if we narrow it down to automotive service technicians and mechanics, as of 2013, women made up just 1.8 percent. Yeah. And
1: going back to Nancy Boyce, women make up just 0.5 percent of diesel engine specialists. This is I feel like this is more than male dominated. <laughs> like what's oh, yeah. what's the word for like a step above male dominated? It's doodly. <laughs> it's super doodly. <laughs> and I'm sure that we have uh, lady mechanics out there who are just like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just said that doodly. Yeah, that it's like a super doodly profession. (laughs) Although, how could you deny it? I mean, it's mostly men.
0: Yeah, the stats kind of speak for themselves.
1: Um, And Deloitte, in 2015, released their Women at the Wheel auto industry report. And it's great. We're going to have a link to it over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com in the source post for this episode. I highly recommend you look at it because it's basically one giant infographic. I don't know if that's as big a draw for everyone as it is for me, but I'm like, "Oh my god, they just look at all of the great graphics and little stick figures they use." But okay. So anyway, Deloitte talked to a ton of women in the auto industry, not just mechanics, but kind of women overall, and they asked them how to fix this problem. There's so few women mechanics. So, number one, the biggest thing I I felt like was cited was creating a more flexible work schedule and environment. This was a huge factor for the women interviewed. They also talked about how important it is to develop the workforce early. I mean, Kristen and I talk about this in every STEM conversation we have about the importance of inspiring and attracting people early in their lives. Kids who might not know that a job is available to them. Um, because most of the respondents in this Deloitte survey said that schools are not doing
0: enough to encourage girls to pursue automotive careers. And I have a feeling, too, for kids growing up, there's a socialization factor where dad might take little Jimmy out and show him the ropes with a the, with the family car, whereas little Susie might just be left inside. Little Susie never gets to go to the dealership. <laughs> no, she doesn't. But of
1: course... Another way to introduce a huge influx of women into the automotive industry would be to start World War Three. Oh, Lord. Oh, Oh, goodness. No,
0: no, I'm not. I'm not advocating for that. No. Well, we don't need a World War, Caroline, because even before World War One, Automotive schools for women existed and they denied that learning about auto mechanics conflicted with femininity. We have this this whole like thing like throughout the history of this profession where it's like, seriously, ladies, it's okay. You can do this kind of work and still uh, still be pretty.
1: Yeah. Your tiny hands and your your caring nature, Mm -hmm. it, it can apply
0: just as much to an engine. As as to your family members. And that was something that writer Hamblin Rossiter wrote about. He compared the job of fixing an engine to caring for a sick family member. Like you said, and assured readers that, quote, a woman does not spoil her hands or even roughen them slightly handling machinery if she takes care of them. Yes. Yeah, so put on that lotion
1: wear the gloves Wear the gloves. Make sure when you're washing those dishes, ladies, you use that dish detergent that doesn't... It's got lotion in it or whatever. And sleep with those lotion gloves
0: on <laughs> to keep your hands extra Coat soft. your body in Vaseline. Yes. And then get under the hood. Um, <laughs> but if we do drive up to World War One, Sorry, I had to get a mechanic pun in there at some point. Love it. Um There are already... Women showing interest in cars. Not surprisingly, I mean, we established that there are these mechanic schools, but we also have women like Wilma Russi. Yeah, in 1915, Russi was already
1: known as an expert garage mechanic, and she actually became the first woman to work as a taxi driver in New York. And I love it because anything you read about her, it's like It goes into detail about how she would drive around the town in these dresses with the leopard print hat and the leopard print scarf and cuffs and all of this stuff. She was no slouch when it came to fashion. But what I think is important to mention about that is Russie was one of many wealthy upper class women who took to driving and therefore mechanics which is something you had to know how to do if you were going to drive a car because, you know, cars in 1915, you had to know how to take care of them when it inevitably like crapped out on you on the road. Um, But it was driving and touring and motoring were huge among upper class women because, I mean, it got you out of the house. It got you to see the world, kind of. I mean, the context of this is around this time. You have all of these women hopping into cars, whether it was for, like, promotional things for companies or just to show that women could do it. Hopping into cars and driving cross-country or making these long drives just to show, like, yeah, ladies can do it. But those women were largely, as you might imagine, the upper class who had the time and
0: money to spare. Yeah, in 1909, just to hop back a few years, Alice Hewler Ramsey became the first woman To drive across the country. And she was also a woman of means. Her husband bought her a car the year before. And the trip was uh, a promotional campaign for I think it was called the Maxwell Car Company. And I I really love that for propriety's sake, she brought along her two conservative sisters in law, (laughs) Nettie and Margaret. As well as a 16-year-old friend to keep things lively. But, I mean, because the, uh, I mean, first of all, the interstate system was pretty much non-existent, they would have to follow sometimes, like, telegraph lines just to get where they <laughs> needed to go. But uh, throughout their trip, they had to fix uh radiators that had overheated, blown tires. At one point, uh Ramsey talks about how they got stuck in an irrigation ditch in Wyoming, and she was like, oh, it was no big deal. We just took out the block and tackle, hooked it up to a sump, and pulled the car right out. Like you do. Yeah. And she would end up, though, Ramsey would end up making that drive, I think, 30 times. And she was eventually named Woman Motorist of the Century. And so also, though, around the same time that Wilma Russi
1: was mechanicking all over New York City, in 1916, the Girl Scouts of America initiated an automobiling badge. And to earn it, you had to demonstrate not only that you had driving skills, but that you had mechanics, talent, and first aid skills. Basically, like, are you going to be able to put out an engine fire when you're driving this 1916 automobile?
0: Yeah. Well, and as Ramsey had to do and and every successive like female driver after that, in 1916, an automotive instructor asserted that there was no reason to assume men were better mechanics than women. But the Introduction to one of his diagnostic exercises included the scene setting of, quote, you will kindly imagine yourself 20 miles from home and dinner's getting cold. In the same way as uh, who was it? Hamblin Rossiter comparing with the engine to a sick family member.
1: Hamblin Rossiter, whose name sounds like an anagram.
0: Right? Like that doesn't, that's not a name. Hamblin? Yeah, Hamblin yeah. Rossiter also sounds like some, uh, Silicon Valley mogul who invented an app that we all use.
1: You're right. You're, you're actually right. I agree with you. No, but I just love that that sexist scene setting for his manual is paired with his assertion that like, yeah, ladies can totally do this. It's fine. Like ladies, come on, do this job. You, you can totally, you're totally qualified and smart enough. There's, it's not a man's job, but When I'm teaching you, I need to put it in terms you can understand. Exactly.
0: Like dinner. And a lot of times these kinds of promotional events, like women driving cars across the country, were of of the angle of, well, if a lady can do it, right, anyone can. So, yeah, I mean, of course there's like... Some sexism rippling throughout it,
1: yeah, and but at this time, it is getting more and more common to see stories in the popular press about lady mechanics filling in the gaps as men are going to fight in World War one. I. I mean it was a way for women to serve their country and make money i mean it was it was a great opportunity for women who'd perhaps never worked before,
0: yeah, there was um a, a nineteen eighteen article we found with a photo caption, not exactly a woman's job perhaps, but these patriotic sisters stop at nothing when they have once entered the work. Entered the work, yes. yes. Once they've entered the work. Um,
1: same year, in 1918, there was a handbook titled, The Care and Management of the Modern Motor Car. Uh, there's specifically geared Geared toward women. Oh, Oh, here we go. Now I'm doing it. And Virginia Scharf, who's the author of the book, Taking the Wheel, Women and the Coming of the Motor Age, called this handbook's tone patronizing and jocular. But the important note is that. It praised these 400 YWCA auto mechanic grads saying that they were just as good as the dudes in, quote, mastering the mechanical and technical details of a car. And they warned professional chauffeurs to watch out for that influx of ladies because you have to keep in mind, you're like, why does it matter? Why do chauffeurs care about ladies driving? Because chauffeurs were also responsible for fixing and maintaining the car. I mean, everyone's seen Downton Abbey, right? We all know about the chauffeur who had to fix the car, and then married the daughter. Whoa, spoilers! That was way back. That was way back. That's We're way past that now. But if we look at military-specific involvement, you've got the Motor Corps of America that was established by the National League of Women's Services and the Red Cross to provide transportation and ambulatory services to military personnel. And this gave women the chance not only to learn how to drive and serve
0: their country, but also maintain those vehicles. And in order to join the Motor Corps of America, you had to have a chauffeur's license, a mechanic's license... with a passing grade of at least eighty, on top of many hours of training,
1: and there were perks. Kristen, we've already talked about the coveralls, right? Hmm. Um. Well, one 1918 New York Times reporter loved it too. Uh, he wrote, "The young women also ought to be praised for their spirit of service." Of course, he's talking about the Motor Corps women. Uh, the conditions of service impose no special sacrifice of feminine qualities. So there it is yet again, mm-hmm. which is something which is a sentiment we will see repeated now, today in 2016. Also, that like, hey, you
0: can still be a lady, lady, Nancy Boyce. Yeah.
1: And he says, also, who can doubt that their uniforms make them even more attractive? What a
0: win win. Such
1: a win win. You can be so gorge <laughs> as a uh, mechanic. And of course, author Sharf, who we mentioned a second ago, assures readers that the uniforms were meant to and succeeded in minimizing both femininity and individuality. For instance, members of the Women's Auxiliary Corps, the WACS, whether you're a mechanic or a truck driver, you would wear these khaki green one-piece coveralls that were just the same as those that the guys wore on purpose. Like, you were meant to blend in. There was no—nobody wanted, like, anyone to stand out when it came to serving.
0: And like we hinted at a few minutes ago, this field of mechanic work meant different things to different classes of women, because I think it was Sharf who pointed out that for those wealthier drivers, as you mentioned, Caroline, uh, this offered an opportunity to get out of the house and kind of shrug off those constraints of Victorian femininity, as Sharf put it. Whereas for... Less economically privileged women. I mean, this was just a job. This was a great Mm -hmm. opportunity to make some money.
1: Yeah. And in the interwar years, in the 1920s, though, a lot of those volunteer drivers and mechanics from wealthy families ended up returning home. Hundreds of former service women flocked to those vocational schools like ones that the Knights of Columbus established in Washington, D.C., for instance, to take auto mechanics training. There were so many women and we talked about this. We've talked about this in so many other episodes um, where so many women didn't want to go home whether it was because they needed to support their families or because they'd just gotten a taste of freedom and independence that
0: earning your own money can give you. And all of that pretty much happened all over again. During World War II. So if we hop over to Australia, for instance, hello, Australian listeners, Uh, the National Roads and Motorists Association offered lectures on vehicle mechanics to women with the aim that they could be ambulance drivers. And the women in these courses were like, oh, my gosh, this is so easy. So the NRMA offered more advanced hands on mechanic training. They're like, oh, okay, they can handle this. Well, Let's teach them some more intensive skills. And one high-scoring student, Miss Kay Broadbent, ended up organizing a Women's Auxiliary Transport Corps and successfully trained more than 500 women to handle trucks, Ambulances and motorcycles. Amazing what can happen when you empower and
1: educate women. Wow. Yeah. Um, and of course, during World War II, even Queen Elizabeth, well, although at this time princess, uh, served as a truck mechanic. She was part of the women's auxiliary territorial service in 1945, uh, during which time she learned to change wheels. She deconstructed and rebuilt engines and she drove ambulances and other cars. And there's a great, again, over at our source post on our website, uh, there's a link to this article that has all of these pictures of her tinkering with cars, and it's fabulous. Even if it is a photo op, I don't care. Don't tell me. I just love it. I love to see her, like, tinkering with engines and stuff. And when we hop back to the United States, there is a slightly different landscape during World War II than there was during World War One, mainly Specifically in this case, because cars were way more common at this point, as was the knowledge of how to maintain them. So you had all these GIs who could repair trucks and tanks. They didn't necessarily rely on people at the garage. They, you know, if something terrible happened when they were out in the field, they could handle it themselves. But at home, of course, we saw the same labor shortages. Mechanic manpower dropped 40% in the U.S. between December 1940 and 1942 and you had new car manufacturing that was halted in favor of the war effort. So what does that mean? You don't have any men to do the car repairs, and you don't have any new cars. You can't, like, buy a new car when your old one craps out. You have to repair the one you have, which means that you have this influx of women into garages, into military garages, so not just the garage on the corner,
0: and also just learning to repair their own family's car. And car companies were directly recruiting women. Uh, for instance, by 1943, the Studebaker Corporation declared women can and must be employed for automotive maintenance service. And author Kevin Borg talks about the parallel rise of Rosie the Riveter and Mary Joe the mechanic. Did he make that up? Because I had never heard that before. I hadn't either. I Googled it and only his book came up. OK,
1: yeah. And that's fine. That's totally fine. No, I wish that she really existed though. Yeah, if only we had artistic listeners who could possibly artistically interpret what Mary Jo the mechanic, uh, Rosie the Riveter's friend might look like. I'm just gonna leave that, leave that right there. But, Borg discusses my new hero, uh, the 90 pound Evelyn Mighty Might. Rand, who attended a Boston trade school with 40 other ladies, and they ended up working at an army ordnance shop in Maine, first as mechanic helpers, then as straight up mechanics. And what's so great about the story is they were paid comparably to what men made. Uh, and Rand told Borg, uh, we did all types of work on 10 wheeler trucks, Jeeps, Dodge weapon carriers and staff cars. We overhauled engines, did tune ups, reline brakes, greased vehicles and whatever was written up on the job order by the inspector. And so Mighty Might, she ends up getting promoted to the machine shop, where she overhauled carburetors, generators, distributors, on and on and on, and worked on brakes. And when her shop closed in 1944, she wasn't sent home. Mighty Might got a raise and was transferred to Dow Air Base to continue rebuilding and repairing ordnance vehicles, but... As is the case with so many women whether you're a Rosie or a Mary Joe once the war was over Rand told Boric she was heartbroken because she had to return home
0: Oh yeah and we'll talk about what happened after the war when we come right back from a quick break Due to the GI Bill, a lot of men who returned home from the war went back into or newly into mechanic positions. And it it also helped them open their own shops. So in 1950, at the end of the spike we were talking about in lady mechanics, more than 4,000 women auto mechanics were listed in the U.S. census, which was a 340 percent increase Over 1940 figures, but keep in mind, this is still not even 1% of the whole pool. Yeah, I mean, it sounds great that in
1: 1950, you've got this many women working as mechanics, but... As Kristen said, that was the end of the spike. That was, that was it. By 1960, only about 2,300 women auto mechanics were listed in the US census. But I mean, it's not like they disappeared. They obviously were still, women were still employed as mechanics. In 1995, women in technology news, interviewed Betsy Hoffman, who at the time was the chair of the Automotive Technology Department at Vermont Technical College. And Hoffman was the first woman in the United States to hold the Automotive Service Excellence L1 Advanced Engine Performance Certification. And she this should be a familiar refrain, got into mechanics because she didn't have the money to take her car and had to learn the repairs herself, wanted a stable, steady job where she
0: could earn a good paycheck. I feel like the theme of this episode is really just sisters doing it for themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Hoffman predicted, quote, enormous opportunities for women in the automotive field and fewer and fewer obstacles to their success in it. Why? Because of those things that we mentioned at the top of the podcast, the fact that, It's almost more mentally challenging than physically challenging with the move toward electronic components and really light parts. And the fact that, like, even male mechanics, as Hoffman pointed out, are going to rely on lifts, levers and teamwork. To get all of this stuff done, it's not like you
0: are individually, by hand, expected to lift a whole engine. And we're also seeing a small but notable trend of, again, sisters doing it for themselves, um, such as... Patrice Banks, who is an ex-Dupont engineer who's kind of become the face of women getting into the garage and also starting their own garages. So as she gave a TED talk about this, there are all sorts of articles profiling her. And the gist of it is that she couldn't find a female mechanic. So she became one. She talked about how fed up she was with feeling like what she called an auto airhead and getting scammed by, quote, the male dominated car care industry. So as she was still working as a DuPont engineer, she took community college classes for two years on the side earned a diploma in automotive technology and ended up founding the girls auto clinic in 2013, which I believe is in Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean,
1: she talks about how she wanted to correct the gender imbalance in the industry because, unfortunately, Hoffman's predictions never came true. That was back in 1995 that she's like, more and more women are going to do this. There's fewer and fewer obstacles. We've yet to see it happen. And so Banks's goal is to sort of decimate that discrepancy. Um, her girls auto clinic organization offers free workshops that teach women how to learn how to take care of their cars, how to talk to a mechanic and what to do in an emergency. Um, she's also in the process in Philadelphia of opening an auto shop that's tailored specifically to women and staffed by lady mechanics and technicians. And it'll include a nail salon, which at first I rolled my eyes at. I will admit, I rolled my eyes at that at first. I did too. But have you ever had to wait at an auto shop or a dealership? Absolutely. It's obnoxious. And especially if the wi is spotty and you can't do work, I never have time to get my nails done. There you go. I was like, you know, Banks is on to something. But... The eye rolly part of me, like that totally does play into all of these narratives about like, well, you still gotta be girly. Oh, don't worry, you can still be girly. But I'm I'm once I thought through about like, oh actually I would probably take advantage of that, I unrolled my eyes. I'm I'm
0: happy to report. Well, and it reminds me of the mechanic shop that's been here in Atlanta for a while called My Favorite Mechanic is a woman. I don't think that they offer manicures. But, no, and I'm
1: fine with that. But I
0: know a number of people who go there yeah. and get great car care. Um, and one thing that we really haven't talked too much about in this podcast is how women do often feel bamboozled in mechanic shops. Um, there was a 2013 Northwestern University study that confirmed this as well. Uh, it found that auto repair shops tend to give women significantly higher price quotes than men when customers are uninformed about market prices. And I've noticed that in my personal experience as well. If I go in clearly not really knowing what's wrong, I will get all sorts of diagnostic problems and suggestions. But if I go in knowing exactly what I need, then that's, I mean, that's it. It's kind of like if you show some knowledge and you show what's up, then it's, it seems like you tend to get less pushback.
1: Yeah. And, and you see that in comments about on these types of articles, people being like, man or woman, if you don't know anything, you'll probably be taken advantage of. And I hate that that's the case. Why can you not just go into an auto dealership or mechanic shop and be treated honestly, no matter who you are or what you know?
0: Wouldn't that be so nice? That'd be so
1: nice. But. That's the kind of stuff that these women are, are pushing back against. There's also um Julia Johnson, who started the Heart Wrenchers Auto Club in San Francisco in 2010. And they do free car repairs for low-income folks. They teach Girl Scouts and other kids basic auto maintenance. And they generally just work to support and inspire other women to not only take care of their cars themselves,
0: but get into the industry. I love it. Yeah, I love that kind of work. And this is something that's not just happening in the U.S., if we go over to Nigeria, Sandra Agwabor started the Lady Mechanic Initiative, which has seen more than 700 women across five states graduate since 2004. And of spring 2015, more than 300 women were on the waiting list to take the two-year program. Yeah, this woman is amazing. So Aguabor
1: recruits women who are in pretty risky situations. She visits brothels, she visits poor areas where there's a lot of drug activity. Um, at least a dozen of the women enrolled in her program in 2015 were former sex workers, and they're working alongside, or learning alongside, former lawyers, engineers, university grads. It's not like this is some charity. She's honestly just trying to support all types of women and give them more opportunities there's this great um, video that we'll post to on our site where Agrabore is telling an interviewer why not start empowering women to be mechanics Um, she started with just a handful of women and now she's got this train and pay program so a lot of the women that she trained are now at other garages, their own garages, and they get paid to train other ladies through this initiative. So it's this whole network of women supporting women. Uh, As Agwibor says, I really believe when you train a woman in this work, you give something to the whole community. And
0: those Nigerian communities need that kind of work because they tend to have harsh road conditions, lots of older cars, and countless generators that are keeping things humming despite the shaky electrical grid, which kind of harkens back to Nancy Boyce and her work in those remote areas in Alaska. And I also love this quote from Winifred Pofiore, who at the time was wearing a bright red (laughs) T-shirt, reading, I fix cars. And she says, in Nigeria, this job isn't common for women. So if you do it well, people will really admire you. And she goes on to say how her bosses treat her well, but they also kind of like to flaunt her in front of customers because, quote, it's good business to have a female mechanic. Yeah, I love. So in this video that I was watching
1: that was interviewing all of these women who work with Aguibor. They were going out into the community to try to drum up interest in this alternative life like here you have the chance to have this job make more money have a more steady income and these women mechanics were so freaking enthusiastic i loved it they were like going up to people's houses being like Whoa, lady mechanics we're awesome you should join us and they just go on to the next house it was basically like a lady mechanic pep rally a
0: traveling lady mechanic pep rally i imagine them like pumping wrenches in the air excitedly yeah that would be amazing they, they should make a float like a wrench float to accompany their excited lady mechanic parade. Yes. And I, I have a feeling, though, um they also have access to a lot of wheels. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. They could, something. They could use that,
1: too. Something tells me that would be the case.
0: Or maybe just drive a car around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hmm. But I don't know. I feel like a parade is more effective. Yeah. We, I mean, here's the thing. We got a lot of ideas. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we can be a consultant for, for marketing. More parades. <laughs> um, but it's also not just happening in Nigeria. There have also been stories about this in Senegal, where women own and run shops, including Femmes Auto Chicory Mechanic and Fatou Fatou Mercedes, which was founded by two cousins both named Fatou, as you might imagine, who trained for seven years and saved up to open their own shop. And I love it. They said that we were the only two with enough courage because the rest got married.
1: Yeah, and they ended up, so they had to sort of squat. They were like shop squatters where they did their auto mechanic work. But they didn't have to worry about that anymore because they got a visit in 2007 from the Senegal's president at the time. And so Fatou Silla, one of the cousins, said, women in the street would laugh at me when they saw me walk by in my mechanics jumpsuit. Now they don't laugh anymore. Oh, man. But it's interesting, though, that at Fatou and Fatou Mercedes, they don't actually have any female mechanics on their staff. They own and run the shop. But you need an advanced degree to work on luxury cars. And so there is that deeper issue of when you get people access to education, then they can have those higher paying jobs. And that's true. Globally true. That's not just in Senegal.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and we see this dotted around Europe as well, for instance, in France, the garage only girls opened in spring 2014 for the same reason. We keep reiterating of women being tired of feeling uncomfortable and getting ripped off, although some have criticized this as essentially like capitalizing on feminism. Um, then also though, if we pop over to England, Caroline's Cars, hey, hey, it's a shop for you, uh, is an all lady garage started by Caroline Lake.
1: And it was interesting to see that the criticism of like trying to capitalize on feminism, which I thought was interesting, um, mainly because I, I don't know, I, th- I think, It's fine for women to want to not only be their own business owner, run their own business, but also to make fellow ladies comfortable.
0: Yeah, because it's an issue. A lot of us have have experienced this. And why not set up a a safe space? But
1: it's just so funny. You see comments on all of these articles from guys who are saying like... uh, Oh, this isn't so innocent. They're not just trying to help people. They're, they're just capitalizing. They see a business opportunity and it's like, well, wait, yeah, of course. Well, yeah. So, that, so do you. Yeah. I, I don't, I, that, I don't feel like that's a really valid criticism, not surprisingly. But, um, if you, fair listeners, want to find your own lady mechanic in your town, there's this website, Auto. A-U-T-O, no, dot com, which lists auto shops and free workshops that feature women and support yeah. women.
0: And you know what? Uh, if there are any women mechanics listening, if you want to shout out your uh, place of business to us, let us know. Because we could create our own Sminty archive of of lady auto shops as well. Where where are places that are friendly to lady customers? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, with that, listeners, we want to hear from you on this issue. As a customer, have you ever experienced what Caroline and I have talked about of feeling ripped off and talked down to? And for mechanics, what have you noticed or experienced about the gender dynamics in garages momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuff podcast and messages on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break
1: well i have a letter here from matthew in response to our episode on Polly murray uh, he says, I just finished listening to your podcast on Polly Murray, in which you rightly bring attention to her many admirable accomplishments. However, Murray was not the first to come up with the underlying concepts behind intersectionality. Rather, as Eric McDuffie has written, a group of black women associated with the Communist Party, including Grace P. Campbell, Louise Thompson Patterson, Esther Cooper Johnson, and Claudia Jones, first discussed these concepts during the 1920s and 30s as the triple oppression or super exploitation of black women. As Louise Thompson wrote in 1936, over the whole land, Negro women meet this triple exploitation as workers as women, and as Negroes. Like Murray, these women challenged gender as well as racial norms and understood that these as well as class were related issues. Since you asked for unsung trailblazers, these women leapt to mind. The stories of these women are documented in Eric McDuffie's book, Sojourning for Freedom, Black Women, American Communism, and the Making of Black Left Feminism. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. We love, of course, we love hearing about trailblazers. So thank you so much for
0: filling us in on these amazing women and I've got a letter here from Rasheen on our Varicose Veins episode and Rasheen writes I was recently guided to your podcast after Kristen's piece on stuff you should know on her trip to the Great Wall of China and have since been mining your back catalog with relish Your latest episode on varicose veins hit a nerve or vein. I grew up observing my mother's and grandmother's venous issues with trepidation and developed my first varicose vein along with my first pregnancy at 25. They reduced between pregnancies, but would re-emerge at their previous full-term ferocity with subsequent pregnancies and degenerate from there to term. Four babies and seven years later, my legs are a train wreck, but along with stretch marks, sagging skin, and breast pitosis, my word for the day, cheers ladies, I've come to accept them as part of my changing body. I have considered surgical treatment, but with four children to care for, I can't afford the recovery time. One small point that I took issue with was your assertion that pregnant women should put their feet up. Elevating the knees above the belly in the last 10 weeks of pregnancy can lead to the baby stargazing, which is face-up or OP presentation, which can lead to a longer and more painful labor and a greater risk of intervention. Personally, I would rather have a timely, intervention-free birth at home and lumpy legs. Just one of the crummy decisions of parenting. So thanks for your insight, Rasheen. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about lady mechanics, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.